Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to Matthew, the sixth chapter. I'll invite you to be opening up your Bible to Matthew, chapter six. I'm going to read a couple of verses here from the Sermon on the Mount in just a moment. That'll help us to get underway in this part of our worship. Matthew, chapter six is where all that's going to start. And as you're turning there, I will join in the welcome that was extended to you earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. We do have lots of guests in attendance, and we appreciate so very much the fact that you're here. And we've got uh, lots of our own folks and even some folks that haven't been able to be out a lot recently. I see Miss Levon's here as well this morning. Real tickled to get to see her out this morning. And everybody else today as we've come to worship God and glorify Him. But at the same time, we're giving and receiving encouragement. And that's just kind of the dual blessing of coming together in assemblies such as this. Read with me, please, in Matthew, the sixth chapter. I want to just get right down to business this morning in Matthew, chapter six, where Jesus says, beginning in verse 19, do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the word that brings us the very most comfort? What is the word that rings out and assures our hearts? What is the word that helps to fuel our hope and keep us going? I think it's the very word that Jesus uses right there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20. That word is heaven. There's just no word quite like the word heaven. That word speaks of eternal joy and endless bliss. It speaks of being with the Lord and being in the presence of Jesus and the angels and the righteous of all time. There is nothing, I believe, that so helps our Christianity. There's nothing that so helps us to to serve God faithfully, to walk the straight and narrow path, to have endurance and perseverance like talking about and thinking about heaven. Yet even as I say all of that, I am afraid that far too often we're not thinking about heaven. At least we're not thinking about heaven as much as we should. We're just so busy. We're so rushed. We're so hurried and scurried and we're coming and we're going and we're doing a million different things, even a million different good things that we just don't have a whole lot of time to think about heaven. Those long thoughts about that sweet home of the soul, they... Well, those thoughts just seem to elude us. We do sing about heaven. Appreciate all the good song selections that Brandon chose for us this morning. I hope you saw the common denominator in all those songs. But other than singing about heaven, how much thinking on a day-to-day basis do you do about heaven? Just ask yourself. Compared to how much thinking you did, say, how much thinking you did to plan for your vacation this summer? Or how much thinking you did to plan for that remodel in your kitchen? How much, comparatively, how much quiet, contemplative thinking have you done about heaven in, say, I don't know, the last six months? Actually, maybe if you can't think back that far, let's shorten that up a little bit. How about in the last seven days? Since, since, since this time last Sunday, compared to how much time you spent maybe in the last seven days watching sports? either on television or at the ball field, or compared to how much time you spent in your vehicle listening to music or listening to talk radio, how much time did you spend in this past week in a non-church environment, how much time did you spend thinking 
about heaven. I'll give you a second to chew on that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if the Bible heart is up here, then would our minds reveal that we truly treasure heaven? Or is it possible that maybe we actually treasure something else? This morning, I'm going to do something that I am afraid I have not done nearly enough in the last six years here at Lakeside. I want to preach about heaven. I got looking back through all of my sermons that I've preached in the last six years. I've preached one sermon about heaven. I certainly talk about and preach about heaven in various ways and other lessons, but I've only got one heaven sermon. This morning we'll make two. And I want you to know that as I'm doing that this morning, there's nothing, there's nothing fancy about what I'm doing. There's no tricks up my sleeve. It's pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward as far as the game plan today. I just want this morning to stress and to read and to teach and to focus and to concentrate all of us on thinking about the wonders and the glories of heaven. Because the more that we think about heaven, then the more we will treasure it. And the more that we treasure it, the more determined we will be to go there. So let me set before you then this morning three very simple and fundamental truths about heaven that help us to get our minds and our hearts fixed in the right place so that we can treasure heaven even more. And that all begins by just saying that heaven, if you didn't know, heaven is incredible. In fact, heaven is more incredible than even what the Bible can say. Now, that may sound like somewhat of a disparaging remark, and I sure don't want to accuse the Bible of being inadequate in any way, but we need to remember that the Bible has to employ words. And the Bible writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit as they may have been, those writers were often grasping to find the words, to be able to describe something as glorious and as magnificent as heaven. Look, for example, with me in the book of Revelation. Let's just spend a minute or two here in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, look at how John begins the apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. That word show is rendered in another translation as signify. What's the significance of the word signify? Well, the significance of that is that the book of Revelation is full of signs. Think of those first four letters in the word signify. Sign. And there's all kinds of signs going on in the book of Revelation. Look in chapter 15, for example. I'll give you just one illustration of that. In chapter 15 and in verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1, John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Revelation is a book that is full of signs. And what do signs do? Well, signs always point to something, and more specifically, they point to something better than the sign itself. Think about it. When you're driving down the road in Orlando, and you pass a sign that says, Disney World, next right. Hamilton's, here we go. Disney World, next right, Disney World, when you get there, is better than the sign. Am I right? 
The place is way better than the sign was. And that's what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It's trying to point to some things, but the reality of those things is going to be so much better than the signs themselves. And i got to tell you, that really grabs my attention because the signs that the Bible gives us, they're still pretty awesome. Have you ever noticed that? Look in chapter 4. Let's just crank around in Revelation for a minute. In chapter 4, Jesus tells John, I want you to come up here and I want to show you some things. And what did John get to see? Revelation 4, beginning in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. That is a stunning Description of heaven. Want to see some more? Look in chapter 7. In chapter 7, because it's not just the appearance, the aesthetic look of heaven that makes it so awesome. Notice what goes on in heaven. In chapter 7, in verse 15, Therefore, John says, he says, They are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more. And neither do they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Those descriptions, those kinds of words, those are the things that really cause our hearts to long to be in a place such as that. In fact, John really furthers that and drills that home in chapter 21. Kind of brings all of these things to a head. In chapter 21, notice with me beginning in verse 3. In Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Drop down to verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. John continues on talking about the wall and the gates. Drop down to verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square. Drop down now to verse 18. As John, he continues to talk about all the beautiful parts of the wall. Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Drop down now to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. 
For the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. You can tell just in that little sampling that John is stretching the limits of human language to try and say how incredible, how amazing heaven really will be. But those words, those descriptions, those signs, they are enough, I believe, to captivate our imagination. In the words of that grand old hymn that we sometimes sing, Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream. Do you ever read passages like this and just start dreaming about heaven? Have you ever just in the middle of your day stopped everything and just daydreamed about what heaven's going to be like? Of course, reading about heaven and dreaming about heaven, that's not nearly enough to fully satisfy our souls. Places like this, they always have to be, they have to be experienced. Last month, Tiffany and Hattie and I, we went up into northern Michigan. And we got to see and got to be around three of the five great lakes. You know, we've got Lake Cumberland. We think Lake Cumberland's pretty cool when there's water in it. But Lake Michigan and Lake Huron and Lake Erie, man, just absolutely dwarf our little lake down here. The, 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 the clearness of the water, the beauty of the evergreens that just kind of line and go around the shores... Those mild summer temperatures, oh man, it was amazing to be up there. Tiffany and I, many times, we'd pull out our little smartphones and we'd start recording videos of the things that we were seeing and we were trying to capture the splendor of the Upper Peninsula. But you know what? When you ask us to see those videos and we pull out our cell phones and we show you those videos on our little six and a half inch screens, that doesn't look nearly as impressive, does it? That's how it always is. You go to the Grand Canyon, go to Niagara Falls, go to those redwoods over in California. We take all these pictures, we bring them home, we try to show them and share them with our friends to give them a taste of what it's like to, to see and, and, and be there amongst those places. But eventually we have to say what? Eventually we end up saying, you, you just got to go there. You just got to go and experience it for yourself. Can you hear what John is saying? Again and again and again throughout Revelation. John's saying, you've just got to go and you've just got to experience it for yourself. Yes, we can read these great passages. We can read about the great throne scene in Ezekiel. Or we can read about Isaiah's incredible vision of the seraphim and how mighty they were and they're flying back and forth. We can picture those things in our mind's eye. But what's it going to be like to get to see those things In person. Or what about in John's Revelation? It talks about that angelic chorus. How they sing a new song. Man, curious about that song. We can speculate about that song. We can imagine how that song must sound. But you know what? What's it going to be like when you get to blend your voice with that mighty angelic chorus? So much of heaven, it is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond anything that our finite little minds can even wrap itself around. You know, I think sometimes, I think sometimes I wonder about caged animals. How whenever they finally get to a moment where, where they get to be set free, 
they, they, they get to be, you know, unfettered. They get to, you know, they get to go and just live out in the wild. You know, they've been trained all their life to, to live within the confines of this cage, but now they're being set free to go live out in the wild once again. Sometimes it can be kind of hard for an animal to, to figure out how to cope in that new world. I wonder in heaven, what's it going to be like for us? How long is it going to take us to get adjusted and get used to being in this awesome and incredible place? How long before we can finally get to a point where we're no longer looking over our shoulders wondering when the next temptation is going to come? Wondering when there's going to be another persecution or more pain come our way? How long is it going to take us to realize that you know what? This is never going to end. It's never going to stop. There's no time limit on heaven. This is eternal. There's no clocks here. There's no watches. None of that's going to matter anymore. I can serve and glorify God forever and ever and ever. We are so used to living in a fallen world. We are so used and accustomed to sin and evil being all around us on every side. So the thought of living in God's perfect world... It is indescribably wonderful. It is something that you and I cannot afford to miss. If the pictures that the Bible paints of heaven, if those are great, how much greater will the actual place be when we get to go there and experience it for ourselves? I am particularly interested in that because of what heaven is going to be all about. Because heaven, make no mistake about it, is not going to be a big playground or a retirement home in the sky. No, heaven is about being with God. Did you see that in Revelation 21 verse 3? What is the downbeat in Scripture? The accent and the emphasis in Scripture is always on the presence of God. Read it again, Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Unfortunately, people today have so many misconceptions about heaven that 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 just gets totally missed. People today talk about heaven and they think about what it's going to be about and they think it's going to be about what they're going to get in heaven or what they're going to do in heaven or all the neat things they're going to enjoy in heaven. And it kind of comes across sounding like heaven is just going to be this big, giant country club. I read this quote from the famous author Ernest Hemingway. He said this. He said, to me, heaven would be a trout stream that no one else is allowed to fish in. And two houses. One where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well. And the other house would be where I have nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. That's my image of heaven. Well, there you go. I hate to be the one to break it to Mr. Hemingway, but that is not what heaven is about. Selfishly fishing in your own stream while you commit adultery against your wife and your family. That is blasphemous and that is vulgar. But you know what? I suspect that it is more than just worldly people who have wrong and mistaken ideas about heaven. I think sometimes even we, as Christians, as godly people, we allow carnal thinking to slip into our mindset and slip into our depictions in our mind of what heaven's going to be about. 
Sometimes even godly people can become very materialistic, very this world oriented in our conceptions of what heaven is going to be like. I need to remind you though that heaven, heaven is going to be very different from life here on this earth. I want to read a verse in John the 14th chapter and I need you to turn over there with me please. Excuse me, let me go to 1 Corinthians 15 first. Let's grab this passage first. In 1 Corinthians 15, I, I want you to see just how different Heaven, the afterlife, is going to be as Paul describes that. Paul talks here about the resurrection, and he talks here about the body that we will have in the resurrection, the body that we will inhabit in heaven. And what does he say about that body? In 1 Corinthians 15, begin reading with me in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, Paul says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul says, in the next world, in the next life, we'll be different. We'll be really different. Our bodies will be different. That entire world will be different. Yes, make no mistake, point number one, heaven's going to be great. But it's not going to be great in the sense that In the sense that now you can suddenly hit a golf ball 500 yards. Or that you can catch bigger fish. Or that your car never ever gets a flat tire. No. 1 Corinthians 15 is saying that all of those kinds of things, they don't even apply in heaven. It's all going to be different there. And it is especially going to be different because the emphasis in the Bible is never on, oh, We're going to have a great time in heaven getting to gratify our pleasures and our desires there. No, the emphasis in the Bible is that heaven is all about going to be with God. That is the real essence of heaven. Would you cue up John 14 now? In John the 14th chapter, I want to show you this. Because this is a passage where I believe lots of misconceptions about heaven have been born. In John chapter 14, Jesus is helping His disciples to to cope with the reality that He is soon going to be taken away from them. That He's going to be leaving them. And so He says these words to help them as they look to the future. In John 14 and verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. The preferred translation for years, probably for centuries, was that term mansions. Which caused people to get the idea that in heaven, you get a mansion. And in heaven, I'm going to get a mansion. Start doing the Oprah thing. You get a mansion, you get a mansion, you get a mansion. Everybody gets their own mansion. 
And that is where that song comes from. Mansions over the hilltop. I want a gold one. That silver line. You know that line of that song. How materialistic is that thinking about heaven? I want me the biggest, shiniest, prettiest mansion that you can give me, Lord. But the truth is, that's not what Jesus said here. In fact, that's a terrible translation. The ESV and most of the other more modern translations render it correctly when it says, in my Father's house are many rooms. You don't get your own mansion in heaven. What you get is a room in the Father's house. That's the emphasis. One translation actually renders verse 2, there is more than enough room in my Father's house. The Bible does not support at all this idea that heaven is this land of of a zillion different mansions. You have your mansion over on Angel Drive. I've got my mansion over here and it's got to be gold with silver lining. And I've got mine over here on Apostle Drive. And you can drop by sometime and we'll have coffee and we'll eat chocolate until our heart's content because you don't even gain weight in heaven. We don't have to worry about that there. No! That is not the biblical image of heaven. Let me illustrate it this way. If you take a kid away from his or her parents, you can put that kid in the most extravagant, in the most beautiful, the most ornate mansion you could ever build. But what does that child want to do? That child just wants, just want to go home. I want to be with my mom. And I want to be with my dad. The emphasis in John 14 and verse 2, Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus is telling us that in heaven we will dwell with our Father, not across town in our own place. And He is telling us that because we are the children of God. And as children, we want to live where? We want to live with our Father. And that is exactly what makes heaven Heaven. If God ain't in heaven, it ain't heaven. Heaven is all about being with God, being in His presence, basking in His glory. And by the way, you understand, don't you, that that is what we were made for? If you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, go back to Genesis chapter 3, you read about Adam and Eve, they are walking and they are talking with God. They had that kind of close relationship with the Creator of the universe. They were able to be in God's presence. But sin, sin came along and it destroyed all of that. Sin ripped them and it ripped us away from the Father. So what makes heaven so great is that that relationship, that perfect fellowship with God, it will be fully restored. In fact, that's really the theme of the entire Bible. How God is trying to restore people to Himself. And I will freely acknowledge to you that I do not understand everything about that. I do not. I do not understand what it's going to be like to actually be in the presence of God. But I will tell you, I find that thought to be way more exciting than thinking of heaven as a celestial playground or as the giant retirement home in the sky. Because God made us to know Him to be in relationship with Him, and to ultimately dwell with Him. And in heaven, in heaven we will have all of that come to fruition. Which leads then to this third and final truth this morning, probably the most important truth of all. 
And that is that heaven is a real place. And that means you can go there. You know, sometimes when we talk about heaven, we sing about heaven, sometimes we have to, if we're discussing heaven with folks, we maybe have to labor a little bit to to deal with some of those misconceptions, some of those wrong ideas about heaven. And at the end of all of that talking about heaven, it can almost sound like heaven is just, like it's almost just too good to be true. Like it's almost a fairy tale. Yeah, it's, it's some nice wishful thinking, but eh, it's just not going to ever be reality. And you know what? Even if it is true for me, it would just be impossible for me to ever get there. Especially that idea of living with God. I mean, yeah, the Bible talks about that. Jesus talked about that, but it just doesn't seem plausible for me. Live with God? Have eternal joy? What is... Is that even possible? Yes, it is. Heaven is a place. Heaven is real. And you can go there. And we know that because God Himself stands behind the promises of Scripture that say so. All the things that the Bible has to say about heaven, and really this morning, we have only touched the hem of the garment. In fact, maybe the the hem of the hem of the garment. About its glory, about its security, about its terms of admission, about its joy, on and on. All of those things, they are guaranteed and they are backed up by the Word of God and we... We need to trust God. And that is ultimately what it all comes down to. In the world of, of investing, in investing, if, if you want to invest in the safest possible investment, what do you buy? In America, you buy government treasury bills. You buy T-bills. Now, T-bills don't grant you a big return on your investment, but we're not talking about what makes you the most money. We're talking about what's the safest here. What do you buy? You buy T-bills. Why do you do that? Well, because on those treasury bills, printed in teeny tiny little letters on those bills, it says this. It says, backed by the full faith and credit of the government of the United States of America. What does that mean? What that means is that that means that the entire machine that is the United States government, it is dedicated, it is promising to pay off that bill that you can count on getting your money because the U.S. government is backing that up. I do not want to invest in something that says, bound by the full faith and credit of the Confederate States of America. That's not going to do me any good. There is no CS of A. There's no backing there at all. I don't even want to buy some investment in one of these banana republics where they're, you know, changing governments faster than I can even change socks. Because there's nothing there to guarantee it. There's nothing there to make that investment come to pass. Listen to Jesus. In John 12, if you're still there in John 14, just flip back a page. In John chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 44, John 12 verse 44, Jesus cried out and He said, Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts me, believes not in me, but in Him who sent me. As far as financial investments go, government-issued T-bills, that's probably about as good as it gets because they're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. But when it comes to eternity, when it comes to securing heaven, there is something even better than the United States government's promises. Because this is backed by the full faith and credit, first of all, of Jesus Christ. 
And even more so, it is backed by His Father. It is backed by the Creator, the God of heaven, the God who created this universe. Which means that not only can we be guaranteed that such a place exists, but you can be guaranteed that when the Lord says you can go, you can go! Somebody maybe would say, well, how can I go? I know who I am. I am a sinner. I have violated God's will. I have transgressed His law. I have rebelled against Him. I have broken fellowship with God. Somebody else would maybe say, yeah, that's exactly right. I know that I'm not good enough to go to heaven. And you want to know what the answer to that is? The answer is, you're exactly right. You're not good enough to go to heaven. Nobody is good enough to go to heaven. Would you look with me in Colossians chapter 2? In Colossians chapter 2, here is the promise of God's Word. And remember once again, these words are backed with the full faith and credit of the One who spoke these words, which is God Himself. In Colossians chapter 2, here is God's guarantee that is given to sinners who will submit to His will. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, "...in Him also you were circumcised." with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God that the promise of heaven, that it is not contingent on me being good enough, that it's never going to happen. Thank God that the promise of heaven is not based upon my good works or on my own ability to somehow save myself. No, going to heaven, Paul says, it's based on forgiveness. It is based on the powerful working of God. It is based upon what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, which means, it means that there is no reason for you or for me or for anybody else on this earth to miss heaven. There is no good Reason to miss heaven. Jesus said in John 14 verse 3 that it is a place prepared for you. God has done all of these things and provided the way for you. To miss out on heaven then would be the single greatest folly of your entire life. Because the Lord has done everything. Literally, He has done everything aside from overriding your free will. He has done everything to bring you there. The question is, where is your heart? The question is, what do you treasure? I hope that these three simple truths will have stirred and provoked within you or maybe even encouraged and increased your determination to lay up your treasures in heaven. Because indeed, Heaven's going to be awesome. More awesome than I could ever say. More awesome than even the Bible can say. And it's going to be awesome because, number two, 
God's going to be there. We're going to get to be with Him. We're going to get to do what we're created to do, and that is to be with our Creator. And I don't know about you, but I, I intend to go. In fact, I'll just say something that for whatever reason we're just afraid to say it. I'm going to heaven. And I'm going there not because of my works. I'm not going there because, well, I just decided I'm going to do that and I'm just going to get on up there. No, I'm going to heaven because God says I can go. And I'm taking Him at His word. And our Lord is inviting you to go there as well. If you have never done what Colossians 2 what we just read about there? If you have never done this cutting away of sin from your life by placing your faith and trust in Jesus the Christ and then being immersed, be buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then today, friend, what you need to do is you need to lift your vision a little bit. You need to stop looking at the treasures of this earth and all the things that are distracting you. You need to look a little bit higher. You need to look upward and today... You need to render your obedience to the gospel. Heaven is calling you. Zion is calling you. It's calling you to come. Brother or sister, if you are a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully, you keep reading on in Colossians. Paul talks about how Christians need to have our minds set on things above. Is it possible that your mind hasn't been on heaven? Instead, your mind's been focused on all kinds of other stuff down here. Repent. Get your mind fixed where it needs to be, brother or sister. And if we can help you and encourage you to serve the Lord in a better way, then this is your invitation as well. Let's go to heaven. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.